There we go. That's better. All right, go ahead and open up your Bibles, Luke chapter 9. We are on page 961 if you've got one of our Bibles. And first of all, I want to thank you guys for leading us into worship this morning, Julie and Andrew. And uh, if you're a visitor here, my name is Nate, one of the pastors here. I have the privilege of teaching God's Word this morning. And uh, a couple things, just real quick before we jump in, just to celebrate. First of all, we, uh, we've got a new baby in our, in our church family. Thomas was born healthy. And uh, yes, and uh, Alicia is doing well, and Scott's actually here this morning and awake, and uh, <laughs> so far, lots of coffee, but, uh, but definitely um, be praying for them. And then also, uh, the Nuts, um, Lorelai is doing well. Have you heard for sure, Glenn, are they home? Yesterday. Came home yesterday from the hospital, and so we've got two babies home from the hospital. There will be a food train going around, okay? And so we, we actually talked about this in our, our cross-training this morning, just about creating a culture where we've got a bunch of people who are not consumers, but we're, we're servants to one another. And I'll tell you what, one of the best ways to create that culture is to bring a casserole to somebody. <laughs> when, when, when somebody does something for you that is above and beyond the norm in service, uh, that that speaks volumes. And I know for me, I, I was talking about this uh, this morning, one of the things that helps, has helped me bec- to go from that kind of consumer mentality where I come to church and I, I'm looking to get, 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 to, okay, I come to serve others is when somebody just did something radical for me. It was um, actually Clay Jernigan, Cameron would remember this. We came over and just mowed our yard for no reason at all. Just, and it like blew my mind that somebody would do that. And so taking people casserole is powerful, I'm telling you. All right, <laughs> do it. So we'll have that. It'll be going around on the email and through Facebook. And so make sure if you get an opportunity, sign up for that. All right, Luke chapter 9. We've been walking through the book of Luke together. Last week, if you were here, it was the story of the transfiguration. And so Peter, James, and John got this amazing opportunity to go up on the mountaintop and they just, they saw a glimpse of God's glory that nobody else has ever been able to see before. And I can imagine they were just blown away by it. And we talked about last week, though, that you can't just stay on the mountaintop, right? You might have this spiritual experience that is just amazing. God sweeps you off your feet. And in that moment, there is nothing you care about except for God and your relationship with Him. But that's not where we live, is it? We live in the valley. And so today, what we're going to see is the disciples come back down off the mountaintop into the valley, and of course, there's trouble waiting for them. And our story today really has two parts. The first part of the story is the story of uh, the, the remaining disciples that stayed down in the valley, didn't go back, didn't go onto the mountaintop. They are confronted with this, this boy who is demon-possessed, but they can't free this boy from the demon. They can't cast out this demon. And so Jesus has to come in and and cast out the demon. So that's the first part of the story. And the second part of the story, once again, Jesus predicts his own death to his disciples. And the disciples are just confused by it. They're afraid. They don't understand what's going on. And it doesn't seem like the two stories have a whole lot in common. There's not a connection, at least at first glance. But I do think there's a connection. I think the connection is the unbelief of the disciples in both situations. And I think there's a lot that we can learn from their unbelief uh, in our own lives. Very valuable lessons. And so let's pray and then we're going we're gonna to dive into this text. 
Father, you know living in a broken world, it is difficult, if not impossible, for us to trust you apart from your spirit. And so I plead with you now that your spirit in this moment as we look into your word would infiltrate our hearts and flood us with your unconditional love that we would trust in your sovereignty and that would embolden us that that would that would help us to endure through the the challenges of life and that in the midst of the trouble that we face we would honor and glorify you because we know your love that deep. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, I'll tell you what. It smells like loving here. I mean, those cinnamon rolls right now, it, I'm glad there's nobody in the front row because my m- mouth is saliving and I'm going to spit a lot while I talk. So you might want an umbrella if you're up close. All right. Heart of this passage, if you're taking notes, Heart of this passage is that God is sovereign over our problems. Let's read this together, starting in verse 37. He is sovereign over our problems. Verse 37, on the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him, and behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of of men, but they did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. So again, the heart of this passage is that God is sovereign over your problems. Let, let me start with a very direct question. Do you believe that? Do you truly believe that God is sovereign over your troubles? In other words, when bad things happen, do you believe that God is still in control? Or when trouble comes your way, does it cause you to question God? Or maybe you don't really even think about God at all in those moments. Maybe in those moments of trials, you're just panicking, trying to figure out how to fix the problem. And you're just overwhelmed. And even though you don't think about your troubles being sovereign over God, that's kind of how you act. Um, As you let your anxiety, your worry make the best of you. I think this passage teaches us something significant about that struggle. 
It's a struggle that, if we're honest, all of us deal with. And living in a, in a broken world, it, it's natural for us to struggle with trusting that God is truly in control, that he is truly sovereign when those trials come our way. And so let's walk through this passage together. At the very beginning, Luke lays out the setting for us. He wants to make sure you see the connection between last week's story of the transfiguration. He says, on the next day when they were coming down the mountain. And I can, I can imagine, man, that trip down the mountain was probably pretty fun for, the, for uh, Peter, James, and John. I mean, just having a conversation about what all that they had just experienced, about seeing Jesus in his glory, about watching Moses and Elijah's talking with, I mean, I can imagine that James and John are probably giving Peter a hard time. I mean, can you imagine, Peter, what were you thinking? Telling them they could build a tent and we can keep you there. I mean, they're probably giving them a hard time on the way down. I don't know what they were talking about, but I'm sure it was a, a lively conversation. And they get down to the bottom of the mountain and there's the crowd. And of course, there's the trouble. And again, I, I hope by now you're starting to realize that this is just the norm the, the trouble, not just for Jesus, but for us, because we live in a fallen world, should never surprise us. But it does sometimes. I mean, especially if you go through a season where life is just good, it's easy for us to forget that we live in a fallen world. And so when the trouble comes, it surprises us, and we, we start to question, God, what are you doing? I mean, this is not fair. I mean, what, what are you thinking? D do you really care about me? Are you really in control? And it's normal for us to, to think that way. But that's Norman. So in those moments of trial, and when we see trouble coming in our life, we should pause and we should reflect and remember, okay, this is part of just being, this is a natural part of being in a broken world. We should not be surprised. This is, what, this is how God designed our world to be, for there to be trouble. And there's a reason for that. And so this is the norm. This is not the exception. And so in this situation, there's a, a man in the middle of the crowd Screaming at Jesus is, seems kind of normal for this to happen by now. We've, we've seen this a number of times. He's saying, teacher, I beg you, look at my son, my only child. There's a demon that's tormenting him. And by this point, the demon has, uh, says it's shattering him. The child has been crying out in pain. He's been convulsing. He's been foaming at the mouth. I can imagine as a father that would be awful to experience your child going through this. There's good reason for this father to be fearful, to be desperate in this moment. And there, it's interesting, there seems to be a pattern that we're seeing that Jesus has a deep concern for younger people. Uh, we've already seen him heal Jairus' daughter, the nobleman's son, the Canaanite woman's daughter, the, the widow's son. And here again, this father is desperate to see Jesus do a miracle for his only son. And this father does the right thing. What does he do? He brings his child to Jesus. Uh, this is wise. This is what we should do. I mean, when your child is in trouble, what's your default? When they're sick and, and you can't control it, when, when they're making choices and they're going down a path that you know is dangerous, is your default to kind of panic and try to fix the situation? Or do you spend more time bringing your child to Jesus through prayer, through intercession? Or how about this one? This, this, one, this one hits me more. 
when your child is in danger, not because of the situation around them, but because of a rebellious spirit, they just, they're just defiant, disobedient. What's your default in that situation? Is it to be, become harsh with them and to try to control them in the situation? Or do you bring them to Jesus to intercede with them in prayer? Do you, do you look at their disobedience as simply bad behavior that needs to be punished, or do you look at them as a child that's living in a broken world that's trying to figure out a difficult situation and how to deal with it? Uh, our default should be to go to our knees. I, I think about Moses and how he, I mean, he, he dealt with a, gosh, a very disobedient group of children, <laughs> really, the Israelites, for many years, for 40 years in the desert. I mean, think about the, the golden calf. would have been such a slap in the face to Moses and, and to God. And it would have been very easy for him to just give in to his anger and be controlled by his anger and become very harsh with the Israelites. And he does show his anger, but what does he do then? He, he pleads for mercy on their behalf before God. And that should be, as parents, that should be our mentality. When, when our kids are being defiant and disobedient, it should cause us to go to our needs pleading for mercy to God. Uh, I, I look at Hope, our, our daughter, and she is a constant visible reminder of the power of prayer. Um, when, when she was three years old, if you don't know Hope's story, when she was three years old, uh, she had epilepsy and she had uh, seizures so bad that they had to do surgery to remove the part of the brain that was, was seizing. So obviously it's impacted the rest of her life. When she got out of surgery at three years old, they described her as she looked like a slug. She couldn't even hold her, her head up. Uh, we met her uh, when she was six, so three years after the surgery, and she ended up and staying with us after that. And at six years old, she was still, Cameron had a catheter three times a day, she was on all sorts of medication. She could not walk, uh, or, or very, very few words, if any. Uh, and uh, Cameron could go on and tell you more, I'm sure. But it is a ma- a miracle uh, that now t- she's 10 years old. She's been in our house for four years, and she's here with us this morning, talking and walking and and jumping and praising God and and singing. Um, we never thought that she'd be able to get up on her own, and now we, we've got to watch her all the time because she gets up on her own <laughs> and starts walking around, and it's just a miracle, but it's a constant reminder of the power of prayer because there was a mom who said that God is bigger than any problem that we face, and so she was on her knees constantly. Uh, tonight, 6 o'clock, Chris and Becky are going to be here and they recognize that God is bigger than our problems. And they also recognize that in our schools, there are some significant challenges that our kids face. Uh, that we live in a broken world, and our, our schools are broken. And so they need prayer. And so they're going to meet here at 6 o'clock. I would encourage you, this is an opportunity for us to come as a church to pray for our schools. And so they're going to meet here and then go around to, to several of the schools in our, in our community. I would encourage you. Take advantage of those kind of opportunities. Be, be in prayer. There's power as we bring our children to Jesus, just like this man brought his son to Jesus. But in our passage, the, the, 
focus that Luke is highlighting the disciples' unbelief. Okay, that's really the heart of this passage, isn't it? Their lack of prayer. You see, this father, he first asks the disciples to help, and they're unable to help. They're unable to cast out the demon because of their lack of belief, because of their, their faithlessness. In fact, in Matthew's account, the disciples pull Jesus aside, and they, he, they ask him, why were we not able to cast out this demon? And Jesus' response was that this demon, this kind, cannot be driven out with anything except for prayer. And so their lack of prayer showed their, their unbelief, their lack of belief. And so when Jesus responds by saying, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? What does he mean by that? Who is he talking about in that situation? I don't think he's talking about this father that has brought his only son to him to, to be healed. He may be talking about the crowd in general, but I think he's targeting his disciples here. I think he's speaking to them the truth in love. I, I don't think he's got this judgmental, con condemning voice in this moment where he's saying, you fools, you idiots, you, what are you thinking? I think instead his, his mentality is like, look, you've seen, you've seen so much already. You've seen me heal so many people. And in fact, back in chapter 9, verse 1, what does he do? He had given them the authority to cast out demons. He had given them that promise. And so he says, I think his mentality is, look, why aren't you trusting me? I've given you this authority, but why are you not trusting in my promise, in my, my word? You see, they had suddenly moved from trusting God into trusting and putting their faith in a process. They thought, we've cast out demons before. Surely I can, I can do it again. If I pray the right way, if I do the right thing, don't we do the same thing? If we build it, they will come. If we have the right process, we do the right things, then God will be impressed and, and, and things will work out for us. But the lesson that we learn here is that when we try to do God's work apart from God's help, we can expect the same kind of results. The disciples' main problem was that they hadn't trusted in the promises of God. Jesus had promised them authority, but they did not trust in His Word. And when trouble comes your way, do you trust in God's Word? I would encourage you to turn to Romans 8, 28. Some of you have this passage memorized. Romans 8, 28 is a promise that is so hard in our broken world for us to fully embrace and fully trust in but do you fully trust the promise of Romans 8.28? And we know, okay, there's no uncertainty here in Paul's mind when he's writing this. And, do you, and, and we know, we're certain that for those who love God, all things, underline that word all, all things work together for good. And so when you're not bringing in enough money, or your marriage is going through a rough stretch, or your kids are in trouble, you get diagnosed with something that is beyond your control, how do you respond? What is your, what is your default? Do you, do you start to question God and, and ask, why me? Do you have the mentality that, look, there's nobody else that's going to fix this issue, there's nobody else that's going to help, and so I need to do everything I can to fix this situation. God's not going to do anything about it. He doesn't really love me that much. He doesn't really care that much. 
Or when trouble comes, do you believe in the sovereignty of God? Because if you do, you're going to start asking different questions. It changes your mindset. You, when trouble comes and, and you start asking, why me? What are you communicating? You're communicating that, look, I don't deserve this. Or I, this, this is something that I have to take care of. You forget that you, you live in a fallen world. And so instead of asking, why me? Or, or, or is God really in control? If you truly trust in the promise of Romans 8, 28, you're going to start asking different questions. You're going to start asking questions like, Lord, what should I do right now? Or what can I learn from this? And that's, those are much different questions that you start asking when you trust in the promises of Romans 8, 28. Now, I, wa- I want to take a look at the connection between the first part of our story and the second part of our story. And so Jesus casts out the demon with ease because that's what Jesus does. I mean, he looks at this problem. He says, that's nothing. I can take care of that. That's any problem that ever you ever face. Okay, Jesus looks at it and this is nothing. And so he casts out the demon, no issues there. And in verse 43, he says, all were astonished and, and at the majesty of God. I should point out, it wasn't that they were really impressed necessarily with Jesus in this moment. They were impressed with what Jesus was doing, but the crowd was fickle. But he says, all were astonished at the majesty of God, but, and that little word is so significant because it shows that Luke is pointing out there's a contrast going on. There's a connection between what was just said and what he's about to say. So all were astonished at the majesty of God, but while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus says to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. So he's about to say something significant. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. In other words, don't marvel like the rest of the crowd. You haven't seen anything yet, is what he's saying. Yes, they marvel now, but you know what? That's not going to last because there's going to be a day where the Son of Man is handed over. He's delivered up that I'm going to die. Yes, he's saying that, look, If you think the demon-possessed boy was a problem, you haven't seen anything yet. Wait till they kill me. There's much bigger tests of your faith that are coming. And it was vital for them to hear this. It was vital for them to hear the prediction of Jesus' death so that they would recognize that when trouble comes in their life, that God is always more sovereign than the trouble. God is more sovereign than even the death that I'm about to go through. Because ultimately, and we see this in Romans 8 again, it's not men who delivered Jesus over to death. It was God who delivered, Romans 8, 32. He, talking about God the Father, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up or delivered him up for us all. It was part of God's plan to deliver him up. And so Jesus is saying to his disciples, look, when you see me delivered up, when you see me betrayed, when you see me mocked and crucified and dead and buried, when you see all of that happen, don't fail in trusting in God that was part of the plan from the very beginning. He's saying this, don't think about your trouble 
as something that is bigger than the sovereignty of God. In fact, my trouble, he's saying, is because of the sovereignty of God. This was the plan from the very beginning because he loves you. And because I love you, I'm going to be delivered up. Now, the disciples don't have the capacity to to comprehend this yet. They don't understand this. They're they're scared. They're confused. They're frightened to even ask Jesus about this. And 2,000 years later, not much has changed for us today. We still battle with this same unbelief when trouble comes our way. When we see the trouble around us, when we see the brokenness of our world, it is so easy for us to question the sovereignty of God, that that he truly is sovereign even over our, our troubles. Listen, what Jesus is teaching us is that when trouble comes, and it's going to come, it is possible not to be overwhelmed by it. It's it's possible in those moments, in fact, it's possible in the midst of our troubles to be astonished by the majesty of God. It's possible for us to be amazed by the greatness of God to do good in the midst of our trouble. But the only way that that can happen. The only way that you can have that mentality, that attitude, is if you, if you trust, if you have a strong trust in the, in the sovereignty of God, knowing that your troubles pale in comparison to the majesty of God. I think one of the best examples of this that we have in all of Scripture is the, the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. Uh, you think about Joseph's life, it, it was a life full of trouble. I mean, over and over things happen. I mean, his own brothers throw him into a pit to die, and then they change their mind and Instead, they sell him into slavery. And then things start to go well for him. Then in a, in a turn of events, he gets falsely accused and then thrown into prison. But throughout all of that, in Genesis 39, over and over, in fact, in a span of 21 verses, four of those verses are dedicated to teaching the point that throughout all of that trouble, God was with him. And that is huge. And at the end of the story, he's able to look at his brothers who sold him into slavery and say to them, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Because he had learned through his trials to trust in the sovereignty of God, that God was sovereign over all of his troubles. Charles Spurgeon once said this. I love this quote. He said, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. Joseph was pummeled by wave after wave after wave, but instead of flailing against his suffering, he learned to embrace it as a mysterious part of God's will for his life. I'm sure he didn't always understand it, but he recognized that God is doing more in the midst of your trouble than you can see with your own eyes. And so there's three truths that our hearts, they need to completely embrace. For us to really, in those moments of trials and tribulations, for us to find peace and to to trust God in the midst of this, that there's three characteristics of God that our heart has to fully embrace. And so I felt like the best way for me to help instill that into our hearts is just read the Word of God. There is power in God's Word. It is a two-edged sword. And so there are a number of verses I want to share with you 
that, that point out these three characteristics. Characteristic number one, if you're taking notes, that God is sovereign over everything. Every wave, every gust of wind, every trial that you face, God is sovereign over all of it. First Chronicles 29, 11, and 12. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and on the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that pleases him. Proverbs 16.9, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. So you make all the plans in the world, but ultimately God is the one that's going to control what happens in your life. The control that we have, and th- this is, this is kind of, this is sanctification, right? That you begin your Christian life and you are still holding on to control of it. You're holding on control of your own life and it's really just, it, it's fake control. You, you really, God is the one that's ultimately in control. And so sanctification is ultimately just opening up, God is opening up your hand to submit to him and to trust him that he what he know or what he has for you is best. Job 42:2. I mean if anybody understood gosh that God is sovereign over our troubles it had to be Job. He says, "I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted." Isaiah 46:9 and 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. Finally, Proverbs 19.21. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. So truth number one is that God is sovereign. We've got to embrace that with all of our heart, that God is in full control no matter what's going on in our, our lives. Number two, truth number two, God is good. And I, we say that all the time, and I think we glance over it, and we forget about what that means and how good he is. Psalm 31, 19, oh, how abundant is your goodness. You're not just a little good. How abundant is your goodness which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you. In the sight of your children, the children of mankind. Psalm 34, 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Psalm 105, For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. James 1, 17, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God never changes. He never wavers or grows tired of being good. God is sovereign. God is good. Number three, God is with you. God is always with you. He is with you in your trouble. He he sits with you in your pain. Um, 
In the book of Job, you see that the, the Jewish custom was for when somebody was in trouble, when somebody was hurting, you just didn't say, hey, pass by him and say, hey, look, I'll pray for you. They literally sat down with them in their pain for weeks at a time. They said, look, I'm going to cancel everything I've got going on. I'm just going to sit with you. And that's exactly what Jesus does. On the cross, what does he do? He leaves heaven and he says, I'm going to sit with you in your pain, in your trials. Isaiah 41.10, fear not for I am with you. Be not dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is in your midst, mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Jesus said, I am with you to the end of the ages. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Romans 8, 38 and 39, for I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's love is with you all the time no matter what you're going through right now, no matter what your circumstances are, he has gone to great lengths to prove his love to you. I mean, the cross is, I mean, I mean, this should blow your mind what he was willing to go through to prove how much he loves you. God is sovereign. God is good. God is with you. See, at the core of each one of our beings is this desire to be loved unconditionally. That there would be somebody in our life that would look at us and know us so intimately that they would know all of our warts, the things that we don't dare tell anybody else, and yet they would look at us and know all of that and still say, I value you, I love you, I'm going to sit with you no matter what. That's what makes the gospel better than anything else this world offers. Jesus says, I see you and I know you. I know things you won't even tell your wife. I know things you won't even tell your husband about you. And I still love you and cherish you and sing praises over you. I'm jealous for you. And I am sovereign over everything you're going through. And I work all things for your good. Learn to kiss the wave that pushes you into the rock of ages. Man, for a church that does that, know what's going to happen is we're going we talked about servanthood i think that's what frees us to be servants as a church when we have experienced 
the great servant that goes and washes his disciples' feet. He loves us like that. When we experience that, it frees us not to come here and, and put on a face and, and act and put on a performance, but to truly go and to, to love people, whether it's through casseroles or mowing lawns or just sitting with people and listening to their pain and their sufferings. When we do that as a church and our community and the brokenness of our community, gosh, we become a light that will change people's lives. And that's exciting that we get to, be, get to be a part of that. And so let's pray that God would infiltrate our hearts, because I know, I recognize this does not come apart from God doing a miracle in our hearts. We will not embrace the fact that He is sovereign, even in our troubles. We will not embrace that He is good, even in the midst of our troubles, that we will not embrace that He is there with us in the midst of the, our troubles, unless God does a miracle in our hearts. So let's pray that God would do that now. Father, we thank you so much for your word and the truths that you give us. And I pray that it would not just be head knowledge to us, but it would be heart, that you, that you would infiltrate our, our hearts and you would help us to know, to taste, and to see that you are good. I pray that as a church family, that we would be a visual representation of that love to one another, that we would serve one another in a way that would blow other people's minds, that they would come in here and they would see us loving one another and they would say, I don't have that, I need that. Where can I find that? And we would point them to you. I pray right now that we would be reminded of the sacrifice and how much you have proven your love to us. And we would worship you for it. That our, the spirit inside of us would raise up and that we would, be, that we would unashamedly worship you for what you've done. No matter what's going on in our lives, that we would trust you that much that we would be able to be in awe of your majesty no matter what's going on in our lives. Father, we need you to do a miracle in our hearts for that to happen. We can't do it on our own. We need you, Father. Send your spirit. Overwhelm us with your spirit now. We beg you for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you're sitting here and you recognize that there is a hole in your heart and you don't have that kind of trust in God, you've never trusted God in that way, and maybe it's because you've never had a relationship with Christ. I would encourage you today to put your trust in Him. And that, 